Welcome to Inside the Founder Studio with the California Technology Council, where we bring you perspectives directly from startup founders and investors in every episode. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. Nautilus Data Technologies is a member of the California Technology Council, and we're going to be joined in a moment by their chief executive, the Honorable James Connaughton. Among the many things that make Jim's store unique is that he is unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate to serve as chairman of the White House Council on Environmental Quality for eight years under President George W. Bush. For us at the Tech Council, we count on members like this to drive our agenda. Membership is very important to us, and you can learn more at californiatechnology.org join. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. And you can support all of these programs on Patreon at patreon.com slash catechcouncil. Just before we get to today's episode, here's a word from Michael Pakala, Community Manager for Clean Acres, about our upcoming Clean Acres 2017 conference. Hi, this is Michael Packlack, Director of Clean Acres for the California Technology Council. Do your buildings cost too much to operate? Are you committed to making capital improvements but not sure where to start? Join us at the 18th Annual Clean Acres Conference. We'll convene with energy efficiency, building controls, and project experts, as well as project finance, venture capital, and alternative finance professionals you need to get these projects done. Learn more at californiatechnology.org slash cleanacres. That is outstanding stuff. Thanks, Michael. And of course, Clean Acres 2017 is May 16th at Microsoft Silicon Valley. We're going to open that conference with Jim Connaughton, CEO of Nautilus Data Technologies. So we're excited to have this episode for you today, which is a conversation with Jim. Without further ado, here's the Honorable James Connaughton, CEO of Nautilus Data Technologies. On this episode of Inside the Founder Studio, we're talking with Jim Connaughton, the CEO of Nautilus Data Technologies. Jim, thanks for joining us today. My great pleasure. So, Jim, before you got to Nautilus, you were in a couple of uh, capacities in a very public sense in several presidential appointments. Can you talk about your background in sustainability leading up to your landing uh, this role with Nautilus? Well, I got my start actually as a lawyer, believe it or not, so I'm a recovering lawyer, uh, working on sustainability in the 1990s. Uh, I was deeply involved in the regulatory reform movement and this whole beyond compliance movement. How do you do without waiting for the government to tell you what you need to do? And that's how I got my start. So, so Jim, you end up going in to serve uh, in a couple of different roles on, uh, you know, the, the federal complex and the environment. Can you talk about how that kind of influenced your thinking about being interested in, in uh, new directions in the private sector when you were done? Sure. Well, as a result of all my work in the 90s, uh, I ended up getting the rare privilege of serving in the White House uh, for eight years for President George W. Bush uh, in a job called the Chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality. The best way to think of it, that is um, anything having to do with energy, environment, natural resources. Uh, I oversaw the process uh, on behalf of the executive branch. Uh, that included not just laws and regulations, but also um, private-public partnerships, technology development, and all of the energy and environmental activities of the government itself, which is the world's biggest industrial organization. And that's where I got my first exposure, actually, to data centers and energy. 
So you uh, jumped off from there into the private sector and you're working your way through uh, a couple of very interesting roles and along comes Arnold McHale. Can you tell us about how that conversation evolved and, and you end up being uh, becoming CEO of Nautilus? Uh, sure. That's, uh, you know, after leaving the government, I spent four years at two of the biggest, cleanest uh, power companies in America. And through that, really got, the, um, you know, got excited about getting involved with technology. Uh, big old power companies do lots of wonderful things, but they are not innovating at the rate uh, that, the, that the startups innovate. And I said, time to go west, young man. I got hooked up with C3 Energy, working on big data analytics, and saw the software side of the equation. And then it was very clear to me that we had to solve for the data center infrastructure part of the equation. And that's how I met Arnold, a former Navy Special Forces veteran who uh, has been involved in every iteration of data center in the Valley since they were first built in the 90s. Um, and he had the same view that I did, which is uh, how can we create a much more efficient, much lower environmental footprint uh, to much higher performing data centers. Well, so that's just the perfect setup for this. This seems like such an obvious improvement on a uh, really well-established business in the data center industry. Uh, but can you talk about the kind of the basic business model for Nautilus? And, and um, you know, this is like a thunderbolt for, for people that are kind of worried about cooling, and, and you've kind of got this built-in source for that. Uh, that's right. So, uh, you know, in simple terms, Nautilus has done a very a classically basic innovation that could be quite uh, disruptive, which is we cool data centers directly with Mother Nature's naturally cold water uh, rather than air condition them. Uh, and that means that's all the difference. So when you uh, air condition the data center, you have to use a lot of energy to move a lot of water, to evaporate the water, to chill re chemical refrigerants, to handle and treat all the water, uh, and then blow a lot of air around, uh, mixing hot air with cold air. Uh, that's just not terribly efficient. And so when you directly cool with water, uh, you can achieve an 85% efficiency in cooling, which is dramatic. You can eliminate the consumption of water, which is increasingly uh, an important issue all over the world. And we get rid of uh, water treatment chemicals, and we get rid of chemical refrigerants, which happen to be also very potent greenhouse gases, which the world um, is quite concerned with these days. And so, curiously, we are using natural capital, cold water, as a solution to a very big set of environmental challenges. So does that mean that you're basically operating a closed loop of just passing water through the heat sink, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, well, it's, there's art to what we do. It took four years of development and innovation on the part of our team and our, our engineering partners. Uh, but it is a, it is a very well-known process of open-loop, closed-loop uh, heat transfer. And so I always find it interesting coming new to the data center uh, business uh, and having come from the large industrial set, you know, part of the world that whenever you generate a lot of heat in every other sector, you cool, you cool it with water, whether it's power plants, uh, whether it's large industrial processes, ships, all ships use water cooling. Uh, and so I found it really interesting that data centers were air conditioned and I, and, I, and I understand why now. They were, they were an outgrowth of, you know, computer rooms as an offshoot of commercial real estate. And commercial real estate developers, uh, owners, and operators simply created, you know, bigger rooms with bigger air conditioning systems to cool these heat loads because they were, you know, being asked to by their office building occupants. But now data centers have shifted. Data centers are the new power plants of the modern age. They're big. 
They're important. They consume a lot of energy. Uh, they generate a lot of value, um, and they produce a lot of heat. And so what we've done is we've taken proven technologies in every, that's used in every other sector, and we then simply adapted that to make sure that it can meet the five nines of reliability and performance that uh, data center customers require. So, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about where you are in, in building the company? What stage of growth are you at? I understand that, uh, that your Series B was not long ago. So uh, how is the company progressing in its own development? So we uh, closed up the Series B as part of bringing me on board from my role as an advisor for about three years to become CEO last year. And um, through the course of the Series B period into the present, uh, we have successfully uh, built and operated a, a commercial prototype. So we built a mini data center, uh, uh, attached our uh, cooling system designs to it, uh, and we ran that for five months with some very uh, high-profile partners, uh, the U.S. Navy, uh, Applied Materials, which is the big semiconductor equipment manufacturing company, uh, NetApp, which is very well known in the Valley, uh, and then Veolia, the French uh, water and environmental services company. Uh, we also then ran a hot rack because our view was high-performance computing is coming. We can make it commercially affordable, so we wanted to demonstrate that with water cooling, you can actually handle hot racks. Uh, we did that up to 75 kilowatts, actually. Uh, the engineering suggests we can go to 100. Well, that's, you know, now you're talking about uh, server densities in a rack of five to 10 times what the, what the current infrastructure can support. Uh, that's a pretty dramatic shift forward. With all of that, we're now well on our way to our commercial build, uh, and we're, we're proving out two, uh, two basic uh, uh, core outcomes. One is, we're going to prove that you can do uh, water cooling uh, at very large uh, data center, 500 rack uh, data center. We're also going to prove that you can largely pre-manufacture this kind of a system and assemble it. And we're doing a very unique thing as we're pre-manufacturing and assembling everything at a shipyard and putting the data center on a floating barge. Uh, so the idea is building the data center on a barge allows us to build it in a, one location and take it to any location on Earth uh, that's near the water and take advantage of port infrastructure, which is very affordable, very secure, and very flexible. So, Jim, you've just announced your uh, Series C. Can you talk about how that changes the growth path of the company? Yeah, we're very pleased uh, to uh, close on the first tranche of our Series C, and we're now out with a, sort of a whole new breed of strategic investors uh, taking a look at partnering on that. And that is going to give us the working capital needed to finish the first full data center. There'll be a six megawatt uh, data center, uh, probably located in Stockton uh, in Northern California. We're working out the final details on that. And that will allow us to become operational right after the new year. Uh, that's a key milestone for us. And uh, you know, we're just very pleased to have gained the confidence of a very prominent investor, who you'll, you know, which you'll learn about in due course. So, Jim, I, I don't want to uh, uh, get too far into hyperbole, but it seems like there's effectively no limit to this. I, you think of where major American cities are, and almost all of them are on rivers. Uh, of course, the Pacific Northwest already uses lots of hydropower. Uh, what is the kind of limit of the potential scale for this? Uh, well, you know, it's a great question because, as it turns out, you know, whether we are on a barge on water, or on the land beside the water, which we will pursue both options, 
Um, most of the heavy data services uh, that's going on in the world happens near the water because every major metropolitan area actually historically was built on or near the water. And so uh, this is a great opportunity to restore and rehabilitate what is often sagging um, urban uh, locations that are quite yeah, adjacent to the thriving, burgeoning, data-consuming uh, part of the population uh, and do a little uh, community good while we're also doing good for um, the economic activity that data center services support. So you certainly could go into areas where there are redevelopment projects. I mean, the, the waterfront in Philadelphia is a lot like that, right? That you could go into uh, center cities that, that need reinvestment and, and in many ways be part of that kind of uplift of, a, of an urban landscape. Uh, that's right, and that's very much part of our commitment. You know, we, we truly believe in sustainability, and that's, that's uh, economic gain, it's environmental gain, and it's uh, social and community gain. And those are the three pillars of sustainability. We often forget about the third one. In this instance, we can um, really be part of the equation of bringing modern data and IT services right to the heart of uh, urban centers. And as it turns out, the, the price, the cost at which you do that is so much lower compared with trying to site a more conventional land-based air-conditioned data center uh, in any of these cities where the, you know, the commercial real estate side of the equation is really quite expensive, quite high. So, Jim, can we talk about the, the vision for the barge in a port? It, would it be um, more limiting to think about the power supply to that versus the telecommunications? How does the infrastructure support that kind of operation, and, and is it there today if you're going to go plug in in any given port? Yeah, in, uh, in that respect, our, we are like, just like any other data center. We connect the power the same way. We connect the fiber the same way. Uh, as it turns out, uh, I've been to dozens of locations already. Uh, ports are well-situated for both. Uh, the medium-sized ports uh, tend to have a lot of spare power available because, you know, they're losing, they're losing to the consolidation of the larger ports. And so we have found every place we go that there's uh, available power when you focus in on a port location. Uh, secondly, in terms of fibers, it turns out, you know, with respect to um, uh, underwater fiber landings, they all tend to be near urban infrastructure and tend to be near a port and industrial locations. And so we have an advantage not just in, in connecting to the, the land side of the, the backbone fiber networks, but we're also well positioned to be at the, at the, at the focal point where um, cable landings are occurring uh, in terms of undersea. So um, we do have to put in infrastructure just like anybody else. We have this added feature, though, is once we uh, spend the money to connect to the backbone fiber, we can also then open up new economic opportunity uh, at ports or industrial locations and bring that fiber through uh, communities that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. So uh, we have this really interesting indirect benefit that comes from directly putting in place the infrastructure that we need. Jim, you talked about the pilot project uh, partnered with the U.S. Navy. Obviously, the Navy would have really unusual use cases in the open water. How does that change the demands on a system like this that might be modular but also portable? So the Navy has two aspects to it. First, uh, they are just like any other uh, data center user, whether it's um, a co-location or dedicated purpose. They have land-based. Uh, data center infrastructure that supports all of their activities, and they are a major uh, user of data, and they're a major landowner with all the Navy bases all around the world. 
and it needs to be secure, it needs to be highly reliable, it needs to have all the redundancies, and so they're just like any other large industrial customer. But then the Navy has these unique features of, being, of, of, of having shoreside facilities that have ready access to the abundant cold water that we're looking for, uh, and they also have a deployment uh, set of requirements um, to support the fleet. And so the barge-based approach is very similar to the, um, you know, the old power plant barge um, uh, business in that they are very interested in seeing uh, and having the flexibility of being able to move data center infrastructure from one location to another um, as the exigencies of their service requires. Jim, you mentioned a little while ago you're a recovered attorney. Can you, for, for those uh, who are not in the startup universe, can you uh, explain what it's like to be the CEO of an early stage enterprise like this? I mean, it's, we, we enjoy trying to make this, uh, the lifestyle of a startup accessible to our listeners around the world. Uh, what's it been like for you? you? You came from larger organizations and, and you know, going from law school to a big law firm. Here you are in, the, in a uh, Series B stage startup. It's a very different lifestyle, obviously. Can you, can you give people a sense of what that's like? Yeah, so uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's very intense to be doing what I'm doing right now, as anybody involved with startup knows. And it's, what's really enjoyable about it is you are singularly mission-focused. So you are undistracted if you're doing it right, uh, and, uh, and there's just a lot of excitement to creating, building, producing, and delivering, um, and having your hands very close to that set of outcomes. That's why I was you know, really excited when the board of Nautilus uh, offered me this opportunity and when the founder uh, was willing to uh, move into a technical role and enable me to uh, take a little bit more of the uh, other aspects of the job. Uh, it was you know, just exciting. It's also the culmination of a lot of what I've worked on. So I have worked in massive organizations, uh, but even whether you're at a law firm, even in the U.S. government, you're constantly working on specific projects. Um, the startup world is particularly fun because you're at the tip of the spear. Uh, you're, you're introducing a whole new way of doing things. You tend to sort of be offering opportunity to a lot of incumbent uh, players, and then, there's, and then you're involved in everything. You're, and it's all negotiating everything. It's negotiating contracts. It's advancing, you know, uh, intellectual property. So all these lawyer skills I've gained are sort of in, inherent in what I do, and I don't have to think twice about that set of fundamental activities. Now this is really about inspiration of technology transformation. You just don't get to do that in a law firm, and you don't get to do that very much even in government. And so it's just a lot of, uh, it's just a great privilege to be advancing, you know, a major shift in a very, very important piece of our economic sector that also has great environmental and great social importance as well. Jim, what advice would you give to uh, uh, prospective entrepreneurs thinking about making the leap? Uh, uh, it, you know, obviously it's hard to go into a startup without going in with both feet and being fully engaged. Uh, what would you say to somebody that's thinking about uh, jumping into their first startup? Uh, so whether you're jumping in as a summer intern in high school or whether you're jumping in uh, after having uh, served in lots of other very uh, senior big organizational activities like me, uh, the advice is uh, you, you have to have zeal, number one. Uh, two, uh, you have to be focused. Uh, because uh, you are working on 
always on thin resources uh, to accomplish a big outcome uh, with, you know, with a very efficient um, set of players uh, working together. And so, um, and you've got to be willing to be quite flexible and adaptable, uh, both internally with respect to the people that are working with you and for you, uh, but also with the players who are trying to get their head around the introduction of something new. Uh, and new always creates opportunity, but new is also very difficult for people as well. And so uh, if you're entering startup land, you just got to like, like the fact that um, from day to day, uh, it's always going to be something a little bit new and different trying to advance your mission. Uh, but, you know, hopefully uh, you can be successful and contribute to something uh, consequential. Jim, we love to ask every startup guest uh, the same set of questions. Are you ready for the lightning round? Yes. Okay, here we go. Uh, who's your call to the bullpen? In other words, who is the first place that you turn when you need uh, mentorship or advice in your role as CEO of Nautilus? Uh, I've got great advisors and a great board. So it begins with them. Uh, uh, Jay Curley from Applied Materials, who's their CIO, he's been, he's been indispensable to us as we've traveled the arc of our development and how we implement things. Our board, a very seasoned set of uh, software, um, uh, software uh, startup folks from Canada and very big investors in, in, in technologies and hard technologies, which is what we're doing. It's hardware. It's infrastructure. Um, they're the first place we go. And then I am quite fortunate in my professional life than to have a very deep <laughs> bullpen and bench of people that I can call on for very specific issues, whether it's their CFO-related questions, uh, patent-related questions, or just, um, just getting into customers and, and, and communicating with customers. So uh, you have to tap into all those resources, and uh, we're fortunate to have a, a, a big group of supporters and boosters of what we're doing. Jim, we want to give you a time machine now and give you the opportunity to go back and uh, talk to yourself before you took this role as CEO of Nautilus. You've got 10 seconds to give yourself one key piece of advice when you're about to embark on this uh, new journey. What do you tell yourself? You're, you're dealing with hardware and infrastructure in an age when all of the investment community is focused on software and, 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 and quick and easy wins. So uh, buckle down a little more. Find the people that know something about infrastructure. Find the people that are excited about physical invention, just like the folks at Tesla. Uh, and they're out there, uh, but they're harder, they're harder to get a hold of. And I wish I'd uh, done it sooner and deeper, and I'm doing it quite uh, aggressively and deep right now. Uh, and uh, and I, that's a broader issue for technology innovation in America as well, which is we've, we've become over-focused on the easy wins uh, America is best known for its hard wins. That's a good one. Uh, uh, Jim, one, one question we love to ask everybody is what keeps you up at night? Uh, you know, whether that's as a CEO or as a manager of people or as, uh, as the head of an organization that's growing really rapidly, what's keeping you up at night? So I've got a great team, and so I am not anxious, and I don't lose sleep. So, uh, so I don't, I, I don't get up at night. I need good sleep. And the way I'll answer that question is uh, we are focused on getting the job done. And so what, what gets me going to – when I go to bed at night, the last thing I think about before I get a good sleep is what I need to do tomorrow to stay on schedule, to stay on budget, and be ready to deliver for our customers. Uh, and as long as you've got that beacon, um, it tends to set your priorities for time and for sleep pretty effectively. 
Jim, you're a high energy guy. So what gets you up in the morning? What do you think about first when you're ready to go? <laughs> well, as, as my team will tell you, uh, when I wake up, grab a quick bite. I'm immediately on the phone with all of them checking in on where they stand. We have a we have a very uh, checklist-oriented operation, and uh, I just want to make sure that we're constantly on top of the next, just checking the boxes, moving to the next step. So it's a pretty well-defined agenda that's uh, shifting on a daily basis. Uh, Jim, the last one for you is really kind of about talent. One of the things that we've observed in the startup landscape and, and you know, the, the 1099 workforce and, and those kinds of things is the way that we're working changes your organization is set up to be uh, capable of being anywhere. Uh, have you noticed the way that we work changing, and how does that create opportunity for startups to find talent anywhere as opposed to being worried about being in Boston or Silicon Valley? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, we, are, we, are a very, we have a very core group of, uh, of personnel associated with the company, and then we are very vendor-driven. So we are one of those highly virtualized companies that you hear about. Um, and even within our company, uh, we are spread out all over the San Francisco Bay Area in terms of where we live and often where we're, you know, engaging in our work activities. Uh, and so um, you've got you've to be – you've got to have a great team that you can rely on to do their job without your having to supervise them every minute of the day. So that's one, and I certainly have a team that fits that mold. And then two, when you're dealing with a lot of vendors, vendors are service-oriented entities. Uh, they know they've got to retain, um, you know, your confidence and trust. And so if you manage vendors well, vendors can, can actually deliver for you with the flexibility um, and with the intensity you require. Um, but also there's great advantage to them working on other projects as well. I mean, I like vendors who are working for me, but I want to know that they're always hungry for work. Um, and having been a vendor myself uh, back in my earlier days, I, I know what that's about. So uh, the other thing I will then note is keeping your own personnel, keeping that relatively lean is a good thing. So I like to hire higher skilled, highly motivated people um, who can, uh, you know, who are just willing to really dive all in uh, and, and run the sprints that are necessary to be successful as a startup, and, and they get their personal satisfaction and reward from doing that. Um, this is, these are not nine-to-five jobs, uh, and you need people who are able to manage their personal time and their business time, and both are important, uh, in, effectively in big blocks. And so um, you've got to have that flexibility. You have to have that intensity. But then you also have to have, you know, give people freedom to clear their heads and uh, rest their bodies. So, Jim, how do you think Nautilus Data Technologies is poised to change uh, the industry overall? How does a startup uh, uh, move the whole data center industry? Well, first, there's no question that over the next 20 years, all data centers are going to be water-cooled. That's inevitable. Now, we will have been the technology innovators to showcase that, prove that it's possible, uh, and deliver quite quite dramatic both uh, you know economic benefits as well as these environmental and social benefits that I discussed. So that's first. Second, um, by doing so and, and showing that you can also do it with some mobility, with some flexibility, mobility, uh, we're also going to I think inspire the sector to democratize access to modern data services. Uh, right now, um, data centers, data center infrastructure, you know, it's it's an elite business for elite entities. Uh, and, you know, the future, whether the future of smart cities or smart transportation, uh, the future of smart educational systems is going to depend on 
several billion people around the globe having access not just to water for health, energy for, you know, to support their lives, well, data to enrich their lives. And so, curiously, the data center infrastructure is the foundation of this next wave of, of sort of economic and social opportunity for people around the world. We hope to be a catalytic part of what is a very large equation to pulling all of that off. This has been a few minutes with the Honorable James Connaughton, the Chief Executive of CTC member Nautilus Data Technologies. Jim, thanks again for your time today. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks again to Jim Connaughton. We appreciate the time with him. We also want to thank Scott Horwath for the music today and to Rachel Lawley and to Michael Pakalek and the rest of the CTC team for helping put together all the parts that make this episode possible. We'll talk to you again soon. And don't forget, Clean Acres 2017 is May 16th at Microsoft Silicon Valley. You can find more information at californiatechnology.org slash cleanacres. We look forward to seeing you then. Inside the Founders Studio is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.